You are listening to the Next Play Podcast, the playbook for high-performing leaders who want to exceed their full potential. From walking on the Ole Miss football team at 5'7", 150 pounds, and earning a full D1 scholarship, to coaching thousands around the world and working with massive organizations like IBM, I've learned countless lessons that I'll be sharing right here with you. Join me as I interview some of the most successful people so you too can learn how to focus on always moving forward by deciding, planning, and executing on the next play relentlessly. This is Richie Contartesi with the Next Play Podcast, and today we have a very special guest, somebody who's been in the game for a very long time and has had some serious success. This is a big player. Um, He's worked for many different companies, including SAP, Salesforce, um, Siebel, uh, and um, he's what he's going to share with you today around leadership and growth is going to blow you away. So uh, super excited to have him. He's been in uh, in the industry 30 years selling and managing uh, sales into all sectors of the energy industry. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, He's responsible for all aspects of sales on a worldwide basis. Um, and you know, just one story of many, but, uh, he grew his region at Salesforce 20 times in total contract value within a four year period. So he knows what he's talking about. He's no, he knows what he's doing. He went to Syracuse university, Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks Richie. Glad to be here. Absolutely, man. Thank, thank you so much for being here. So let's go back all the way Syracuse. You graduate, how do you get into sales? So it's really interesting. My degree was in newspaper journalism. I was a sports writer. And I got offered a job at the New York Times uh, covering the Rangers. I wasn't a huge hockey fan, but that was a great opportunity. Uh, And at the same time, I was a professional tennis player. Uh, And uh, what they wanted to offer me for pay, I thought was for the summer. It was so low. It was so ridiculous. I couldn't bring myself to do it. So I went from wanting to cover the Rangers to wanting to own the Rangers. So I went to MBA school to uh, run a sports franchise. But my advisor there, uh, this was, you know, back when it was mostly family run businesses running teams. And he asked me if I was going to marry the owner's daughter. I said, obviously, I have no idea. He said, otherwise, you'd be selling season tickets your whole life. What you want to do, he was on the board of directors at the time of IBM. And uh, he suggested I go into technology uh, and uh, tried to hook me up with IBM. But they were a little too um, super structured for me at that time. I wasn't quite mature enough to, uh, to be so conforming. So I wanted to go where um, renegade IBMers went. And so I ended up uh, ultimately at a company called Prime Computer that was a CAD vendor at the time. And it was mostly ex-IBM people um, selling computer-aided design. And once I got into sales, I was hooked Mm. and uh, uh, did it for quite a while, had some success. And then transformed into leadership roles. Leadership. Okay, so real quick, because you kind of glossed this over really fast. So you're a professional tennis player, right? Really? So okay. So t- tell me about that. Like, what do you? That's a. That's like not a little thing, right? What, well, I wasn't that good. You know the. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know I could make good money for a kid uh, at, as a club pro and as a sparring partner to really good players, and have a pretty me- mediocre ranking. Uh, it wasn't something I was going to get rich off of, that's for sure. But it's a great way to uh, go through school, for sure. And, right. uh, you know, Syracuse was a relatively expensive school at the time. And uh, tennis, you know, paid the way for me. Got it. Okay. So so tennis is what got you through school. But, I'm, but I would assume there's some things you learned while playing tennis that definitely helped in the world of sales. Yes? No? Absolutely. You know, the thing is, is that it's one thing to just be able to hit the ball, you know, hard or 
better than others, but it's another to set up points, to architect matches, to leverage your strengths, identify weaknesses in the opponent, determine a strategy for exploiting those weaknesses. Um, you know, one of the uh, uh, venture uh, uh, companies that has invested in Liquid Frameworks, who is also a, a good tennis player, told me I sold the way I played tennis and I played tennis the way I sold. You know, I find, find a, uh, a point sequence, a stroke sequence that works, and I just go to it and go to it and go to it uh, until or unless it stops working. And usually a weakness a player has doesn't just materially improve um, within the span of that hour. So you can get someone pretty rattled. My entire game was designed to get someone else off their game. So finding something that was going to um, encourage a meltdown of some sort. And, uh, you know, if they liked uh, the ball hit hard, I would do a lot of softballing and angles and spins. If they were a junk player, then I try to drive the ball. Anything to be different than what made them comfortable. And I find in sales, there's a lot of the same thing. You got to figure out your strengths, how those line up with the what the customer needs, and at the same time identify the unique selling value that you offer against the competition and exploit that. You don't have to do 50 things, one or two, and hammer them. Got it. And so do you feel like that was in your earlier career when you were in sales? Right. Is that what kind of helped you raise the ladder? Can you give me an example? Because I think this is really, really good what you're sharing right now. And it's just like you're, 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 you're using your strengths and then you're finding one or two things that separates you from the competition. Right. And then you're hammering that in. That's like your unique selling proposition, your That's USP. Right. So explain to me how you fit. Like, can you give me an example of sure. how you use that? And so. Uh, it, Data Logics was a company that sold ERP systems to chemical and food companies. Okay. A very narrow market. Yeah. Uh, the the food guys used to say we're the same as those chemical guys. We're just less toxic. But the uh, with the one uh, subtlety is that many of those companies uh, measured their inventory in multiple ways. So not just pounds and gallons, but some potency. So for example, uh, a juice manufacturer uh, measures things in pound, uh, inventory in pounds and gallons and also a sugar concentrate called bricks. And the Datalogic software was the only software that had this dual unit of measure, units of measure that do not convert, but you need to track them both. So what happened was in the case of this juice company, before they bought our software, they used to, the, the, the bricks was way more expensive than the overall product, but they needed to make sure they had enough pounds and gallons of juice to make sure they had enough bricks. So by being able to track both concurrently, even though they didn't correlate to each other, they saved $180 million in inventory in the first year. And we knew that, that because to a food or chemical company, 90% of their costs are inventory. It's not yeah. people, it's stuff. Yeah. So if you can reduce their inventory of stuff, you can make a material impact. And while the product had some other deficiencies, that one feature that no one else had was enough for me, to, for us to win at major of companies that had that unique challenge. So I looked for companies, whether it was in the dairy business, they tracked butterfat pounds and total pounds, liquor companies, um, you know, companies that had this very unusual way that they need to manage their inventory and sold a lot of systems to those kinds of companies. And although there were many features that competitors had that were more developed, more mature. Uh, this one feature was so important that it carried the day over any other deficiency. And that's what you hit on. Like that Every was your... time. And if they didn't have that challenge, I called on somebody else. 
Got it. So that's uh, that's that the was a guaranteed win. Right. And everything any place else, we would have to compete more more, you know, level right. playing field kind of thing. Yeah. And why compete on a level playing field if you can create um a winning formula uh that is unbeatable? I think that's so important, man, because like sometimes a lot of people will take on a sale or a project just for the project, but it, they're not, it's not their, their core expertise. So now they have to create this whole thing around it and the processes around it. And then they're doing that over and over for all these different things. And what you're saying is we had one challenge. And if you didn't have that challenge, it was, it was fine to say it's not the right fit and move on. And I think, you know, I, 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 in the first few years of my little 10 year journey, I'm, I'm about a third of the way with you. Um, I did that and I would try to, to, to solve all the problems. And, and it wasn't until I got to one problem and, uh, and I was, and I was looking to say, this isn't the right fit versus the other way around. So that's something that you've done that I think a lot of people can take away with. You look like you're about to say something. So, well, I believe in a very small strike zone, right? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and in, in, if it's a, just because you're, you're, maybe better than the other folks doesn't make it a guarantee you're going to win. And mm -hmm. every minute you're spending on a mediocre deal, you're not spending finding a great a deal. deal. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I'd rather um, not, com not compete uh, if I don't have a uh, pretty much a sh uh, as sure thing as you can have uh, pursuing deal. We do the same thing at Liquid Frameworks, very narrow markets, small strike zone, and try to have the discipline to lay off pitches a millimeter outside the strike zone. Mm. So I, I want to go through your story, but I want to, I want to stay up right there for a second. How do you define the strike zone? So as a leader, you got sales, sales pros, right? And they're, they're all over the place or, you know, how do you say, here's our avatar, here's our market, here's the problem. Do not go outside of that. Like what's your process of, confirming like, Hey, here's the type of companies we're going to go for. Here's how many employees, how much, how much revenue, here's the problem. How do you do that? What, what's your process for that? Well, we have a, a sales playbook that I used as a sales rep that I refined over time. I sold over $200 million worth of software as a sales rep. And okay. uh, so I know it works from an enterprise software perspective. And when I became a, a sales leader uh, first at Salesforce and then at Liquid Frameworks, I use that same playbook and in there we, we bake in how to qualify based on product fit, industry fit, um, ROI fit. You know, if you have a $5 solution to a 10 cent problem, that's not a winner, no matter how functionally superior you may be. And so the ROI has to align with your value message so that it's a problem worth solving. Right. What's a, what's a good per percentage, would you say? Five to one. Because they're going to discount it immediately. Mm -hmm. So whatever ROI you give to a customer, they're going to cut it in half. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we do is we use the customer's data to, we have a, a very defined ROI calculator to reflect the features of our system. Uh, that we think only we have in our market space and play that back to the customer. And even though it's their numbers, you know, they are skeptical that they'll get that kind of return. So the return is going to be good enough to withstand the haircut that the customer is going to do to it. So uh, just, to yeah. So, so just so I understand, because this is such a good topic. So Let's say it's a hundred thousand dollar investment. They have what you're you're saying is that they're going to make five hundred k. That's it. That the cost five that the cost of not using the product is at least five hundred k. So the upside because, has nothing to do it. This is just downside. Well, because we're finding in our case, uh, we uh, eliminate revenue leakage, right? So it's a a pure. Uh, profit okay. generation thing for the customer that we identify. So if uh, if we can prove that they can increase revenues six, seven, eight percent on a billion dollar company, that's pretty good money. 
and uh, <laughs> and it gets their attention quickly, but then they dismiss it part of it because they think that that's ridiculous. Uh, and uh, so your your ROI model has got to be able to withstand both the scrutiny the and the skepticism so that because it does take time to get that benefit. For sure. So um, they factor that in, uh, but you have to be able to be confident and be able to point to cases where you've delivered this so that they can, that are similar to them. So you can, they can believe it. Mm -hmm. So definitely true. Um, the, 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 this is a topic that people shy away from, especially in more enterprise, but it's really big in like 5 million and below. Um, not, not deals, but I mean, uh, companies, right? So mm -hmm. they'll do this. What are your thoughts on, on, is this part of your playbook? Do you do any type of guarantees? So like, no, okay. We can't guarantee. There's so much that's within the customer's control and not mm -hmm. your control, mm -hmm. but history is a way of proving out. So if, uh, you can point to five or so companies similar to them in size, scale, product mix, what have you, you know, we're a vertical market player. So we're dealing with companies and their competitors all the time. So if we can demonstrate uh, that um, their three biggest competitors earned this much, you know, they should be able to do it too. You know, why not? Mm -hmm. But we can't guarantee it. They could be lazy. They could be inefficient. They could be careless. Uh, they, they may not be effective at change management, mm -hmm. which is, you know, when we're, trying to transform companies from operating like the Flintstones to operating like the Jetsons. And uh, companies sometimes are challenged by that. Some are better at it than others. Some take longer to do it than others. And you can't, uh, there's a lot that you can't control. Right, <clears throat> right. So guarantees are off the table. Got it. Okay. Um, so, so walk me through. So, okay. So uh, data logics, you know, you're still in sales at SAP. Walk me through kind of your journey from there to a leadership role, your right. first leadership role. You know, my first leadership role was premature. I was one of those fast rising sales reps, take the best sales rep, make them a manager. Mm. Where was that at? Where that was, was that? at Prime. That was at Prime Computer, which is now uh, uh, parametric technology. Okay. Um, the... Uh, 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 that was PTC. before SAP? Or? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Got Early it. in my career, you know, about okay. five years in. Got it. And the challenge is that a great sales rep is very controlling person. You know, every day that goes by, you're saying to yourself, 100 things can happen and 99 are bad. And so you have to try to control every single one of those. Mm -hmm. um, as a sales leader, you need to be very empowering, mm -hmm. which is why not that many great athletes or great coaches. Uh, not that many great salespeople are great sales leaders mm. because it's hard to make that, that flip that switch, right? Correct. Michael Jordan didn't win anything until he was willing to empower others. Uh, and it's not so easy as yeah. a great athlete or a great sales rep. So I wasn't ready. When, some, when a rep did something I didn't like, uh, I pushed them aside, did it myself. And that was a loser even though we, we could make the numbers, it just was unscalable and hard to get uh, people to wanna work for you if uh, you're just gonna push them aside. So after a year of that, I was aware that this was not working out for me. And uh, so I went back into sales and uh, I became a parent. And 18 years later, when my, now, my daughter went to college, I decided I wasn't done parenting and I'm going to go back into management. Mm -hmm. uh, and I decided to uh, manage the way I parented. If I didn't like the way somebody did something. I would uh, give guidance, redirect, tell them to do it over. And uh, because you got a first line manager in particular needs to be a teacher, needs to be an empowerer and you've got to learn that's why it's so important about having a playbook, whether it's mine or anyone else's, mm -hmm. so that you can build a little structure. Doesn't have to be incredibly structured. Mine's process oriented, but not style oriented. 
So you want to build some structure. Structure breeds confidence and repeatability. Confidence and repeatability breeds success. So you got to put together a framework where you don't have to be everywhere all the time, that you can build um, you know, skills and people and you have and trust them because if they're following the playbook, you know what they're likely to do and um, and they can get better at it, rinse, repeat, keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, and it's been a good model for me uh, to uh, to manage that way. And so yours was teach guidance, redirect, yeah. and then execute. That's right. And then you'd follow back up. Is that kind of your? That's right. Beautiful. Right. Got right. it. Okay, cool. And now is that is that still what it is today? Or it was is. That just your? It is. Got it. Right. Okay. Cool. And you know because it's interesting at Salesforce. Uh, even though they were small, they weren't the, anywhere near the size they are now. I could hire pretty experienced people, um, and I was looking for that. Yeah. Uh, because we we're selling into the high enterprise space. At Liquid Frameworks, company was very small, and I had to hire differently. So um, I had to hire less experienced people and really be more of a teacher. At Salesforce, it was more of um, you know, recruit, ramp, uh, retain, but more or less be a value add, be a, you know, a sounding board, more of a, you know, strategic advisor for the, for the team. Didn't have to, you know, uh, do as much uh, hands-on with them as more or less hire great people and let them do their thing. But Liquid Frameworks hiring less experienced people have needed to be more hands-on, um, uh, more of a, direct teacher and then help them wean off that so they're not codependent and let them build skills and it's been a good formula um, for us and for me got it okay cool so um as so salesforce right you got to salesforce and you were there for give me the numbers you shared these numbers with me you know actually can you give me the numbers from the leadership roles you were in yeah. from the time you got to the company to the time you left in your department your area yeah share, share so, those uh, numbers because they're just from they're, a sales leadership perspective astronomical when i got to salesforce uh the group that i was asked to lead and yeah. grow did about four million dollars and um, total contract value. My time I left, we did about a hundred. Four years later, that's twenty six x. We had an incredible team that we were, I was able to recruit and give them the the freedom. It was really a Moneyball team, if you will, which was before Moneyball existed. But I tried to hire people that had tremendous success but weren't having success. So. At some like point, they, they, they were had success money. in the past. Yeah, that's right. But for whatever reason, weren't having it at that point and try to understand why. And what could I do to get them back to where they had already demonstrated they could be and even beyond that? So real, real quick before we move on, because this is good. Is that is that still your same hiring process today for salespeople? Or? It isn't at Liquid Frameworks because our our my, our company is a lot different than that. And, uh, uh, and, and so I'm, I have to hire um, people on the way up. I have to find, identify talent that is not all the way there. You know what I'm saying? They have high aptitude, have a high ceiling, but you know, they just, they haven't accomplished tremendous amount up to that point. I have to identify the aptitude. Mm. Whereas at Salesforce, that I could find some table stakes where people had put together some great years, uh, understand their, but I do, one thing that has stayed the same when I hire salespeople is I try to understand their sales process. So they take me through deals they won, deals they lost, and I try to see uh, how consistent they are in the way they think, how close is their sales process to my sales process because I'm not so arrogant as to think I can change anyone really. And I don't want to monitor them that closely. So I got to be able to believe that what they're comfortable doing with a little refinement will uh, be what I think needs to be done. So I hire 
uh, process oriented with some daily urgency, you know, well-organized, uh, smart people who can think on their feet, be agile and uh, give them an environment to excel. So that hasn't changed, but uh, that uh, at Salesforce, I could go after potentially bigger hitters than I can at uh, Liquid Frameworks. I mean, my top sales rep, for example, at Salesforce, had her best year before coming to Salesforce had been $750,000, which tremendous amount of money, but she was only making about $200,000 at that point. Um, and the, the, re the reality is she just didn't like uh, what she was doing. And um, uh, so she needed a change and she knew it. Uh, by the time I left at Salesforce, she made $1.8 million one year. Uh, and in fact, almost everyone who's ever worked for me has had their best earning the sales, years. Their she was a sales rep making 1.8 million. 1.8 million. Yeah. She was incredible, by the way. Oh. Um, so. Does she have a team? Like, did she have an assistant? And she, you have no, to. No, she's just oh. a rainmaker. Uh, very well organized, aligns very well with uh, uh, senior executives and what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, you know, a great salesperson has to be multilingual, right? They need to be able to speak the language. Then they have to, uh, so they have to listen to customer's language, understand it, translate that into our language, and then play it back in the customer's language. Right. And, um, and it's a, and, you know, and so we, I try to hire business people disguised as salespeople so that they're comfortable calling on a CFO or a CEO or a CO. Oh, and the way you do that is you have people who think like business people who are looking for the, 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 the ROI and not just a rote ROI, but what is the company trying to do with their business and how to align what we're doing to achieve one of their top uh, objectives for the year. And she, this woman in particular, was unbelievable at that. Unbelievable. How do you guide somebody who's, you know, in a biz dev role in a leader, you're in a leadership position. How do you guide someone in a biz dev role to start reaching out to C-level? Like what, you know, they're not, they have assistants. They have, they're not just picking up the phone. And when you call them, like, how do you, is that your playbook? Like, how do you teach somebody who's got no contacts and they're looking at LinkedIn and, you know, some of these like zoom info and you're mm -hmm. telling them, start calling some C-level execs, you know, let's say they got business acumen. They understand the game They're, you know, but how do they get to them? Like, how do, as a leader, do you keep your team in the game one? And how do you teach them to get to the DMs that they need to talk to? I mean, it's somewhat trite, but it is a marathon, not a sprint in the enterprise space. And so you have to take, it's, it's sort of in conflict. You need to take your time, but you got to, you know, do it now, right? So <laughs> it's, uh, it's a balancing act. But uh, the key thing, at least what I have found, is that I don't believe in just picking up the phone and cold calling. I think the return on effort is so low. Uh, it's good for a BDR to do that sort of thing. But I think a sales rep should, should be uh, leading with emails that are very uh, precise name dropping similar companies, working in your, your uh, value message quickly, because um, this is where my journalism degree comes in. You know, readers and editors cut from the bottom. So say the most important thing first, second most important thing second, third most important thing third, because they may not get to it. You don't want to save your best pitcher for the eighth game of the World Series, right? You want to use that pitcher in the first game, right? So you got to have a targeted message to your buyer and, uh, and you, you keep doing it and you follow up on those emails. That's a much easier and higher return on effort, prospecting effort than just smile and dial all day. Uh, and it's a burnout anyway. Right. Yeah. And then once they're interested, then it's like, boom, right. let's talk. You call them right. or whatever. Got I mean, it. it's better. I mean, I tried to, uh, have people become orthopedic surgeons and not general practitioners. Mm. Like be an expert at why you're calling the value you're going to deliver to this person, mm. to this company. 
mm-hmm. make it meaningful, make it valuable, and uh, make it impactful. Got it. Uh, and you know, that's how that's how we do it. That's how we've always done it. You got to know who your buyer is. Yeah. Know what the message is that's going to align with that person. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but you know sometimes it doesn't always work. You know. Uh, I've always sold for what I would call value systems or never the low price vendor. Yeah. Um, and sometimes a, it's hard to sell value to a price buyer, for example. Uh, okay. And you can't win every deal. You've got to align who is going to best receive, even if intuitively you think this company should buy it from you. Uh, because of the industry they're in or it all you know, aligns factors it, it doesn't make it true okay mm-hmm. yeah. um, there's other factors and you and, and as a salesperson you have to really try to understand the culture of that company and uh, is what you're doing in alignment with what they're trying to do yeah if you can't say that to yourself with conviction you're certainly not going to convince um, the buyer Right. Now, when you say these deals that you're, <clears throat> what is your price point when you're, cause I understand, you know, value selling versus like right. selling based on time or whatever, but what, what, what is your, like, you know, everywhere from Salesforce up, are you, you know, 50 to a million? What's like your, your, when you say enterprise sales, what's your range? Cause everyone's a little different. I see. Sure. So, I mean, the, 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 the highest annual deal that we did at Salesforce on my watch was about 5 million. Mm-hmm. Um, what's more interesting and at liquid frameworks, the largest deal we've done is 4.7 million. But what's uh, like the average, what's like the yeah, average. So I'll tell you what's more interesting. And that is that um, when I joined salesforce.com company wide, the average deal size was $28,000. They were yeah, they were primarily drive-by sales guys selling opportunity management. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. To, to regional VPs of sales type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time I left, our group, for example, our average deal size was over two hundred sixty thousand. Um, so it was a big difference, and and part of it was the breadth of the product that Salesforce was starting to bring out was able to get larger deals, but also selling to larger companies and, uh, you know, the maturation of the message. At Liquid Frameworks, when I joined the company, the average deal size was 12,000. Uh, last year, it was 183. So we've made material changes uh, and improvements in uh in the size of the company to which we're selling, the value that we're delivering, the length of the contract, going from mostly one-year deals to uh, either three or five-year deals. And, and because the customer, when you're selling this kind of system, customer knows that they're not throwing it out in a year, that it's they know that this is a long-term deal. So right. why not sign savings. up for longer yeah, yeah. And, get in, and lock in the pricing or things yeah. of that nature. Um, and, and so it's, you got, but you have to have the, the, the belief that your product is worth selling for longer term deals. For sure. Okay. So two things here, I want to touch on how you were able to go from such a low ticket to such a high ticket. I know, I know time is obviously what you discussed there before we do, I want to track back to when you were leading, you know, you're leading a, a team of sales pros and, they're, they're starting out, they're sending emails. Then when they're getting interest, they're, they're calling as far as how do you keep, like you said, it doesn't always work, right? There's a lot of grit, grind research. You've got to learn the game, right? You got to learn the game of like, if I see this person on LinkedIn, or if I see this type of company with this contact, I, I kind of foresee where the conversation's going. Um, those are things you learn with practice, right? So how do you keep, as a leader, keep your team in the game when they've been doing this for three months and this is enter and they have two twenty six thousand dollars sales and they're looking at their their neighbor and they have seven hundred thousand or a million dollars. 
Like what, what's your process? You know, let's say you have 10 people. How are you keeping ever keeping certain people in the game when they're, when it's not working out for them? Yeah. It's tough to keep people from tanking or, uh, you know, throwing in the towel for a year to start fresh or um, looking for other jobs. But our sales cycles are six to 18 months. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you just do it mathematically. Uh, it's going to take time. But once you get it going, because there's a tremendous repeat buy orientation, companies can't deploy thousands of users at once. They're going to crawl, walk, jog, run. They're going to expand, expand, expand. and um, so that's a big part of it for sales reps. But I think one of the things that we do is we, we, we bonus by quarter. So we want people to, even if they're falling behind on the annual number, to try hard this quarter, try hard next quarter, to stay engaged and keep looking ahead for, um, you know, a good sales rep is always working a 12-month rolling forecast. Uh, and trying to recognize uh, where the deals are. I think the bigger challenge for reps is not getting emotionally married to deals that, that are not likely to happen. You how know? do you do that? How do you teach and lead your people to not do that? Because you're so right. How, how do you do that? <laughs> it's not so easy. No. You know, um, you know, I meet with you every do rep meet every with week. your team. Like what's your regimen? Yeah. like that that might give some more perspective as to how you do it we we use salesforce of course and we're very vigilant about it and uh, uh and, and so that tells a good story it helps the people stay on track we embedded our sales playbook into salesforce to help people along um but i meet with every rep every week uh 30 minutes to an hour depending on how long they've been with the company and we go through the pipeline and not so much what is in, cause I can read, you know, I can see what's in the system and I don't want to, you know, review what they've already wrote. I'm more interested in why, what, what makes us think that um, this is going to close at this date? What, what happens if they don't, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's cause that's the biggest challenge. So if you think of three things that customer, that you need to know about a deal to have confidence in it, mm -hmm. A, do we know who the decision maker is? Mm -hmm. B, have we done a return on investment that customer believes in? And then third, is there a quote compelling event, a date sensitive event that is significant enough that if you go past it, there are consequences. So without those three things, they're good. You know, no deal. So okay. re re walk through those again, because I think this is such good information because First, you got to, if you're not talking to the decision maker, you're done. So, because they're going to at least need exposure to that decision. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. You need, well, you, okay. Okay. So, yeah. So, that, what was the second one? Uh, uh, an ROI that the customer believes. Got it. So, they need to know. It's not just like, hey, this is going to work for me. Yeah. It's, hey, here's how much I'm going to lose, like you said, if I don't, or how much yeah. I'm going to gain. Because at some point, you're going to be competing for money. Correct. Okay. When you say competing for money, you're, you're talking about competition of some sort? Or... No, competition within their company. Maybe they're yeah, buying yeah, a new yeah. plant. Maybe okay. it's software or, you know, opening a new a region someplace. Got it. You know, Got so it. there's competition for that money. So when they're comparing things to do, we need our deal to be compelling enough that they, they do our deal over buying new trucks. I don't know, something. Okay, cool. And then, and the, then third the third one is a, a compelling event, right? And a compelling event is defined as a date uh, that if you miss it, there are consequences, financial consequences. So it's not enough to say my boss wants to be uh, have a decision by a certain date. Okay, that's yeah. great. Yeah. What happens if you don't? Yeah. And if that's they don't opportunity have a good cost. That's that, yeah. Okay. If yeah. they don't have a good answer for that, uh, then you have no deal. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that person just doesn't know, which means you need to go higher and ask that decision maker that question. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I shop for things all the time. I don't buy everything I'm interested in. Yeah. You know, I, you know I, I often have told a story about my windows. I looked at new windows for years. 
But it wasn't until I was gutting my house that I decided, why am I going to paint those old windows? And I might as well get new windows now. I had a, I had a compelling reason to finally buy new windows. Uh, I probably went through 20 salespeople of window salespeople uh, because they kept th telling me how great their windows were, but I didn't care because they, mine weren't leaking. They weren't rotted. Right, I right. had no real reason to do it until <laughs> I was faced with everything else new and maybe old windows. So I got rid of them. So I had a compelling event with consequence. And if yeah. you can't find that at your customer, then your deal is just going to drift and drift and drift. Uh yeah, reach back out in three months. Okay, so so here, how do you teach your salespeople? So those are the three things. If you're listening to this right now and you're in a leadership role, um, you know that, but sometimes just being able to articulate it is, is can be a challenge. So um, how do you teach your team to attack those three things and find those three things? Like finding that date, for example, or finding that, you know, if this doesn't happen, are you willing to go? So, so one of the challenges that I know people listening have is that they'll even be working with a company that's doing well, but they still need that product or service mm -hmm. to get to the next level. That's a challenging client. Would you say back off from that? Or would you still say, go just keep trying to find like, how do you teach people to, to, to find those three things? Well, uh, we I make sure so it's a it's in our playbook and B it's in our sale it's in our Salesforce we have a dashboard um, that lists these vulnerabilities in our deals and so I look at that dashboard all the time and so when I'm having my one-on-one -on -one and I see that uh, a sales rep has a deal forecast for this month we'll say and there's no compelling event or what they wrote in the compelling event, is not compelling at all, um, I suggest that maybe your data is not real. Um, so either there is a compelling event and you don't know it, or there's no compelling event. Either way, this forecast is, you know, random, not like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so by tracking those things, you know, if you can't, you know, you got to be able to measure what you want and the yeah. sales reps got to have it available uh, to them so that they can remind them, oh my goodness, I can't believe I don't have an ROI on this deal, right? And, and because you don't want them forecasting. Forecasting is very difficult. Yeah. Um, and particularly with new customers. And yeah, because so you're trying you just, to get KPI numbers from them and they're like, oh, like maybe this. <laughs> so, yeah, so, it's, so you got to drive these things and you almost need the the sales rep has to understand and recognize. Oops, no compelling event. My deal for this quarter is at risk. I all I have to do is ask two questions: what Why questions? this date, and okay. what happens if you don't? Well, what if they don't have a date? What if like how then do you, you have find no deal? How do you, you find? No okay, so so how do you find the date? I think that's the question that go higher, go higher. <laughs> Why are you looking at this system? I'm looking at this system for these reasons. Okay, uh, at what point do you want to realize the value from this system? They give you a date. Mm. Okay, uh, what happens if you don't? Got it, okay, okay. So you got to sort it. of lead them down the path. Yeah. If they don't know, or they say, well, it would be nice, you know, it's one of six initiatives, then you're not likely to win. It's got it. It, because any disruptive deal and you know what we sell tends to be pretty disruptive to their environment right uh you know they've got to really want you know do you go get root canal for the fun of it no oh, no it, it's gotta hurt <laughs> yeah it's yeah gotta that's hurt. true and what that's happens funny. if you don't it gets worse right right you get you know abscess tooth or something so we're helping with corporate root canal and, uh, and so you have to identify that, that the pain mm. is so severe yeah. that it's got to be treated and it's yeah. going to be treated a certain time frame, or else bad things happen. Got it. Okay, cool. No, this is really good. So what's your current role? So I know you're the SVP worldwide sales, just real quick in 60 seconds. What, what do you currently do in a leadership role at this point? So, um, I recruit 
ramp and hire salespeople. I also am in charge of the pre-sales team. I have a manager and various pre-sales people. Uh, and because our sale is very much a team sale. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just, and then I'm, strate I'm strategically trying to add value uh, to the organization in terms of uh, driving revenue and retention. So how, got it. So, and how many people do you have on your sales team that report? Do you have managers under you or is it just you and the sales team? Right now it's, uh, I have eight salespeople, uh, four pre-sales and one pre-sales manager. And I'm right. adding a few reps right now for this coming year. Got it. And they all report directly to you? They do. Got it. Okay, cool. So this is really good. And just our last few minutes here, um, we, we've mentioned retention a few times. You know, hiring is important. You've got to bring in the players. What's been your process um, of being able to retain the good people that you have? I think you've done a good job of that. You've grown tremendously. What's been your, your secret in, in keeping them? I don't think it's much of a secret. Successful people like being successful. And if they see a path that's going to suddenly not become successful, that's when they start to have wandering eyes and become more vulnerable to others. Mm -hmm. So the trick is, I think, to help people be consistently successful, not just successful every now and then. Yeah. Uh, and An enterprise, it's tough. It's tough because there's, it can be, um, you know, up and down, you sell, then there's absorption, and then you try to sell, you know, it's not a smooth ride. So they need to always be thinking ahead. Because the worst part about selling is that it destroys your forecast, right? You know, you take the, the best prospects right out, then you got to find new ones. The sales reps that struggle the most are ones that can't uh, multi-thread. So in other words, they can't work five deals at a time with different spots, right? Five or 10 deals. So if they, if they get too myopically focused on one deal and then they close it, then they got nothing for maybe six, nine, 12 months. And that's, you're, you're almost certain going to lose that person got because it. they're not going to want to start at the bottom of the mountain. It's, it's a real abrupt, horrible feeling. Yeah. to make a nice sale and then not have anything in the pipeline. So you've got to find a way to encourage people to, uh, no matter how well they're doing at that moment, to be thinking ahead to the next set of deals. I mean, I have one rep right now. Next play. Who, that's it. Who's in the fourth year in a row of being our account executive of the year. And what he's accomplished from a consistency perspective is really remarkable because it's one thing to have a good year. It's another to repeat, repeat, repeat. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he's doing a remarkable job of that. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard. It's uh, sales reps can get a little complacent with a little success. Um, they can, you know, think it's, uh, they can forget what got them there um, and maybe try to cut corners. But, you know, their competitors aren't just rolling over saying, oh, this is the great so-and-so. I don't have any chance. You know, they, it's, uh, they've got to stay hungry. They've got to uh, remember that they have to be thinking six, nine months ahead all the time. Not so easy. No. And I think as a, as a sales leader and a lot of people listening, it's like consistency and... <laughs> keeping the inconsistency and complacency are huge challenges. And so um, just real quick in 60 seconds, how do you, like, I understand we have to keep them consistent. And so for you, it sounds like it's not getting so hyper-focused on one individual deal, but, but moving, you know, staying focused across the board from a leadership perspective, how do you do that across your eight, you know, I guess your 13 or 14 reps, like how do you, keep each one is it is it a weekly one-on-one -on -one? is it a, a team huddle like how do you keep them consistent and it, i know it's we're so short right now and this sure. so i do weekly one-on-ones mm -hmm. and i do quarterly team get-togethers uh that are really not forecast calls they're just learning collaboration calls um you know meetings but uh you know just trying to be uh you know people are in 
this is what other people doing, but I don't believe in these gang forecast calls. I think they're a total waste of time. But um, but keep just keep people driving forward and working towards success and um, helping them do it. The easier it is for them to do it, the harder they'll work. Yeah. And um, and and if you can keep the noise out and keep them focused, um, once they get it going, they can keep it going for a while. Um, we're selling into the enterprise space, not into the small media market. And so companies have a propensity to buy often once you can break through. It's not so easy to break through, but once you do, um, the switching costs can be high and their desire to leverage um, their key partners is becomes more intense. So it's a great opportunity, but they got to stay with it. And if they lose sight of that, uh, they'll have uh, they won't deliver the consistency and then they quit. What's your next play? What's, what's your next big move for you? Not, not, you know, publicly, you know, what, 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 what's the next level for you? You've achieved so much. You've done some amazing things with companies. What's the next play for you? What's the next level for you, Dave? So we were recently acquired by a larger software company called ServiceMax mm -hmm. in a similar space in a similar environment. And uh, what that's allowing us to do at Liquid Frameworks is we're going to grow internationally. We've been primarily a North American focused company, uh, yeah. cherry picking around the world, but we're going to be making um, an active surge outside the US. And so for me to develop a real global business um, with uh, leaders in different parts of the world to grow business locally in various uh, uh, regions will be, I think, very exciting uh, for us as a company. And I think it'll stretch me as a leader. And you know, you're always, you're either getting better or worse. You're never staying the same. So if you don't find ways to get better, um, you know, it's not just the reps, it's the leaders too. Leaders can't get complacent about it. And, uh, you know, if I get a little lazy, you know, it's going to send a message to the team that it's okay to be lazy and, um, and, and it'll, it'll go south fast. So this will be a great way for us to, with, uh, with uh, the backing of ServiceMax to grow the business to a, a true global scale. And that'll be really uh, exciting for me personally. And I think for us as a company. Oh, man, that's uh, that's good stuff. Well, listen, Thank you so much for taking the time to, to share uh, the information you have up here and, and the experience that you have. Uh, this call went a little longer because I think you just there's a lot a lot to, to pull at there. So I wish we had more time, but thank you uh, uh, for taking the time to be on the show. I, I really, really appreciate it. Sure, it was fun. Thanks for including me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Next Play Podcast. If you liked the show, make sure to leave us a review. For more resources, visit RelentlessUniversity.com or download the free Relentless University app. And if you're interested in having me speak at your next event, visit RelentlessRitchie.com. Until next time.